Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. America has a problem. Positive attitudes towards communism and socialism are at an all-time high in the United States. 40% of Americans now have a favorable, favorable view of both. And almost half our kids in their 20s say they favor socialism, which is up from just 40% a year ago. Uh, you know, this demonstrates a stunning lack of knowledge of the history and realities and evils of communism. In the last century, communism has murdered more than 100 million people and forced billions into Marxist tyranny. Uh, China and its Chinese Communist Party is now becoming ascendant worldwide. And in America, we're seeing the rise of cultural Marxism and ideologies like critical race theory. Joining me to talk about these threats and what to do about them are two enormously talented leaders with vast knowledge of the issues. Dr. Edwin J. Fulner, chairman of the Victims of Communist Memorial Foundation, is here. Dr. Fulner is also his little job. He was the founder and former president of the Heritage Foundation, which he transformed from a small think tank with uh, nine employees to the most highly influential research and policy institution in America, if not the world. Ed, thank you, Bill. Welcome to. Thank glad you. Glad you could be here. And Ambassador Andrew Brimberg is the president and CEO of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. He was previously uh, served as a representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. Uh, prior to his work with the UN, he served as assistant to the president and director of the Domestic Policy Council for the executive office of President Trump. Andrew, Ed, great you guys here. Great. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Ed. Uh, You've, 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 I think let's start with you. How did we come to where we are today with, with this issue? Oh, Bill, I've got a uh, little more gray hair than either of you, so I kind of, I guess I got into it earlier. It was brief recap. My 20th birthday, my first trip to Europe with a bunch of college classmates and a priest who was our chaperone. Uh, we were in Munich, August 12th, 1961. We were scheduled to drive in on the Autobahn to Berlin and drive through Eastern Germany, which was very conventional back in those days. Then something happened that night. We couldn't go to Berlin. Everything, the news in my rather feeble German, I was able to figure out what was going on. The communists were doing something. They were trying to stop people from making the transit, trying to stop people from going to the east side, from the communist side, into West Berlin. Turned out that was the night the Berlin Wall started. So, you know, I was kind of there, and communism was very real. Subsequent years, uh, in my, both my research, at first at the Center for Strategic International Studies, where I, I worked on questions like trading with the communists and what that was doing during the Vietnam War, so I came to, came to know it and to see it up close. And it was, um, it was a very sobering kind of experience because the differences were so dramatic between their system and our system. Over here, 
DPS, uh, we have different political parties, different emphasis, but fundamentally the individual is able to uh, be what he can be or what she can be and, and move ahead. So there, those opportunities are just not there. And that's, that's what really woke me up to what was going on later on, exposure to China, mm -hmm. et cetera. But we can talk well, about we'll, we'll So, Andrew, you and I worked together in the Trump transition. Ed, you were, we were all, all in there. that together, mm -hmm. uh, a band of brothers. You were a policy, domestic policy yeah. wonk. I remember you knew everything about every single reg on the, in, on the planet and was very impressive. And then four years later, you've reemerged as somebody that's very passionate about uh, China and the, and the worldwide threat of communism. I mean, how, what was your, what, what happened? Thanks, Bill. So I, I have a shorter story than, than, than Ed's. Um, <laughs> well, you're but, younger. That's but right, that's <laughs> right. So I grew up with the you know, pillar figures and experience of you know, Ronald Reagan and you know, Pope John Paul II's you know, heroic leadership, witness about communism. And as a child, I remember when the wall fell. Yeah, <laughs> you were there when the wall went up. Went up and I, yeah. As a child, I remember uh, when, when the wall fell and, and the fall of the Soviet Union shortly after that. And um, like many Americans, I grew up experiencing, obviously, the, the evils and horrors of communism in the past far away and in the past that was over and that to the degree that you know communism remained a threat you know in the world today it was you know these little you know dick you know dictator countries that aren't really communist was, was the idea of, and just happened to be dictators where no free people would want to live and china but don't worry about china you know they're going to become you know market oriented they're yeah. going to western and liberalized so they're not really going to be communist so it's okay and that that's the world that i you know grew up came of age in and when i entered public policy and doing policy work i focused on domestic issues because i saw the need to preserve economic liberty and freedom at home as the main focus that i wanted to work on so that that's where i wanted to make sure we preserved the ability for you know, individuals to retain their economic freedom, religious freedom, yeah. and work in that space. And it wasn't, and I'm sure like, like many Americans, it wasn't until the experience of the last several years that my, kind of, my eyes were open and I learned a lot. And I, I was incredibly honored to serve as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in Geneva. And that experience, which I'm sure we can talk about, you know, was just stunning um, in helping me really understand the real nature of the threat that communism still poses to the United States, to our way of life today, um, and principally through uh, what, what we see globally, the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I so think that's what drove me when I left government to come, and I was honored to join and lead Victims of Communism Foundation. I think we all need a mea culpa on this one, because I was on Wall Street, and we were you know, pumping all kinds of money into China, and everybody was trying to take their business there and put their factories there, and the idea was, we're going to bring China into the world economy, world trade organization, et cetera. We'll make them rich. They'll become liberal. They'll become democratic. And we'll all be part of this happy world community. Yeah. That didn't happen. Well, Bill, you know, another mea culpa from this side. I remember pulling together the presidents of the Brookings Institution, the American Enterprise, Cato, Heritage. We all sat down and said, we all agree on one thing. China should become a member of the World Trade Organization and China should have most favored nation status because then the market system will work and uh, China will become like more like us. And wow, that hasn't been what's happened. And 
you know, and that was a very much a bipartisan perspective at that time because it was a combination of wishful thinking, but it also, at the end of the, of the Soviet Union, I remember a, a professor at Harvard wrote a book called The End of History. Well, it wasn't the end of history. I mean, it's, it's wow, what we know with Victims of Communism Foundation, the, the, it's worse than ever. Yeah. Well, the Victims of Communism Foundation, you know, it, it, it traditionally looked backward at what happened with Soviet Union and some of the Eastern European states, and but now it's very forward-looking mm -hmm. because this is not a past problem, this is a future problem. How long do you think this has been percolating in China? I mean, is this something that emerged with Xi, or has this been 10, 20, 30 years in the works? It goes back, I think, I think it goes way back. The Marxist ideology has not really changed from the days of Mao Zedong. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they, they try to smooth it over and uh, make it sound good, but unlike my young friend here, uh, you know, I remember the Cultural Revolution and the professors being sent out to uh, pick cotton or grow rice in the fields because they had too much education. And the millions of people who died in those Mao Zedong uh, experiments. Uh, and it's, it's a continuation now of, of what was happening then. And uh, that combined with a really a power grab around the world, now that they've got the uh, economic muscle and increasingly the military muscle, that it's, the world's a very dangerous place now. Well, Mao was a catastrophe economically. He had no idea what to do about an economy. And then the Cultural Revolution was run by his movie star wife, as I remember. Yeah, yeah. And it was all about taking out educated people. But then Ding came in. Wasn't yeah, he the yeah. one that really said Chinese, commu That's back when you Chinese communism with uh, yeah. uh, capitalist characteristics yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah. Doesn't matter what you call the cat as long as but, you get but, to the But it seems like they've been systematically for the since Mao, maybe since the seventies, been systematically building their their what they call their warfares, the economic warfare, the cultural warfare, the legal warfare, and obviously the war warfare that you know, yeah, yeah. missiles and things like that. Andrew, what you had an eye opening experience when you got to Geneva and saw the influence of of, of, of the Chinese Communist Party in Geneva. Absolutely. I mean I was there to see, um, and, and meeting with other ambassadors and diplomats was very eye-opening from, from other countries in terms of their experience of the change of how China and the Chinese Communist Party approach working in international organizations. So I think we've seen an evolution where um, historically their approach has basically been one of, you know, defensive, of just working in those spaces just to, you know, preserve their own kind of sovereignty or domestic issues and fending off kind of criticisms or attacks, which, which is actually where I think one of the issues with the WTO admission, you know, tw 20 years ago, I'm not going to pass judgment whether or not it was a good idea or the bad idea at the time. I think the clear problem that we, I hope we learn from it, and some of my experiences in Geneva, I think, point to it, is that the rest of the developed world in the WTO context failed to hold them accountable. So you can debate whether it was a good idea to let them in or not. But the failure, once you made the decision to invite them in, the failure to hold them accountable and that when they would fail to follow the rules that there would be consequences, that to me was the devastating um, mistake that was made. And that's what we see in, in other international organizations is that they took a defensive approach. We're going to keep doing things our way, you know, pretend to be meaningful contributors to this international order 
and fend off criticism. And what's changed within the last decade, mostly under Xi Jinping, has been they've taken a much more aggressive, proactive approach in trying to change the nature of these international organizations, which, remember, you know, we helped found and build after World War II, um, to change them in ways that advance their communist ideology, not a kind of classical, liberal, free, you know, free approach to, to the world. And we've seen, I mean, whether you talk about their kind of wolf warrior diplomacy or their other actions in the international organization system has become much more aggressive. Now, did you have any, you, you, you were the ambassador for the UN and also other international organizations. Yep. Did that portfolio include the World Health Organization? Yes. And, and Bill, so you know, the, my, my, my background had been in healthcare. I'd worked yeah, in healthcare yeah. for years. So, so because the, the that's, WHO that's on everybody's centered. mind now, what yeah, the yeah. Chinese role with the WHO and, yeah. and, and, the, and the virus, what, what's your take on that? Oh, this is a perfect example, I think, of China acting in a very you know, non-transparent, defensive posture, pretending to be, you know, equal members, fully compliant with an international treaty body, an international organization, and not and the, and the failure of that, that institution and other member states to hold them accountable when they fail to follow the rules. I mean, so I, I would draw a direct line from our failure to enforce the rules under WTO to the reason why we don't see the type of transparency we should have seen from China, you know, all year last year in the WHO context. And, and I think they unfortunately have learned kind of that right lesson that there may not be consequences to our actions. So we're going to keep acting in an aggressive, you know, not you know, friendly and, you know, working with the normal international order approach because there's no consequences when we fail to do so. Bill, a Andrew under understates his own role because I'm so proud of the fact that he actually beat the Chinese communists. And I think that's a story that he's got to tell us in terms of what he managed to do when he was our ambassador in Geneva in terms of the most outrageous example I can think of in terms of intellectual property. You know, who, who steals everybody's intellectual property? China. So, yeah, yeah. so, so, so this was one of the, the first substantive issue I took on when I went to Geneva. Ed talks about one of the important UN bodies in Geneva is the World Intellectual Property Organization. This is a great organization that helps um, intellectual property creators and owners get better access to IP protection in other countries around the world. This is a great way where you know, multilateralism can work in a very efficient way. And what the first issue I ran into is that there was a new election. We, we were ending um, two terms of the incumbent director general. There would be a new election. And when I, as I arrive, everyone's telling me, the leading, the front-runner candidate out there is the candidate from China. And I kind of did a double-take. I thought, like, is this a joke? Is this, like, an Onion article? Are you pulling my leg? <laughs> like, what? You can't be serious. The Babylon, the Babylon yeah. Bee. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I very quickly, in meeting with lots of other ambassadors, particularly those from, you know, developed countries, our traditional partners and allies, I was stunned yeah. where the near unanimity, where in my conversations with them, I basically hear two messages. One, which is, you know, we're really troubled by this. This isn't actually this is this is not a good thing for the UN system or for, for or for WIPO. And then the second message of, but there's nothing we can probably do about it. The Chinese are going to win, and that was just stunning to see that that was the default position, and that it what it took was U.S. leadership um, to lead a you know global campaign and cooperation with other countries. That you know, long story short, resulted in the election of a great 
uh, Singaporean head, head of the Singapore IP office as the new director general yeah. in, I think, the most lopsided you know, competitive vote in the organization's history. You're watching The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Dr. Ed Fulner and Ambassador Andrew Brimberg, and we're talking about Andrew's uh, coup in Geneva when he got the right person to head up the, uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Yeah. And, and Andrew, just give us the anecdote about what happened just before the final vote when the what the Chinese ambassador told you about his relationship with back home. Yeah, th this, this was interesting. One, one of the lessons we had learned was that, you know, this goes back to China's, the way they act in, in the international diplomacy. They can be very aggressive and use real threats, financial inducements to try to change a country's vote. We had seen this in the past. So we were very focused on uh, making sure we had an election. We went off with the good integrity, good rules, and we wanted to kind of limit the ability of, you know, frankly, of, of Beijing to come in over and try to, you know, bribe or cajole or coerce a country to change their vote. Um, so we, we'd, we had worked with other countries to make sure that, you know, less viable candidates dropped out before the election started. And as the election was have, taking place, there'd be multiple rounds live in person there in Geneva, that candidates that we saw that had been really well-qualified candidates, but weren't going to have the votes to get there, that they would withdraw from the race. So what happened was after the first round of voting, one, one candidate was eliminated and all of the other candidates that were running basically withdrew. So you were now faced with, there was going to be one final vote now between the Singaporean candidate and the Chinese candidate. So I, as I referenced, I, I, I approached the Chinese ambassador and inquired whether or not, you know, given that this, all the other candidates had withdrawn, was he going to withdraw the Chinese candidate before the final vote? He, he was not, uh, he, was, he was surprised by my question. And uh, we're very puzzled and, you know, conveyed that, you know, well, we never foresaw this as a possibility. I'd have to get instructions back from J Beijing. Maybe we could postpone the vote to tomorrow and I could decide whether or not we would withdraw the candidate. And of course, we said, no, no, that's fine. Let's go ahead and What was your leverage? I mean, what did you have over him that he had to withdraw? Nothing. No, you just nothing. We, I just offered that, you know, maybe he would want to withdraw to, you know, and he frankly, did. No, the, the, the Chinese did not withdraw. Okay. That, that's why they, there was this final vote that was a lops, you know, the most lopsided vote in the organization's what was history. The vote? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was 83 countries voting that represented the coordinating committee. And I believe the final vote was uh, 55 to, is it, that would be 20, 28? But weren't they afraid of the Chinese retaliating? Because they're notorious oh, for... Oh, yes. Oh, this is my conversation with the Chinese ambassador. Yeah. My conversations with other, you know, ambassadors throughout the process indicated that countries were very concerned about retaliation by China, which is why one of the most important things we focused on that had nothing to do with the, you know, diplomacy and politicking on this was in the international organization body, the rules for how the election would take place. We had seen examples in the past where, you know, the individual delegate who votes on behalf of the country, like I did, would take their phone and video or photograph them voting for the Chinese candidate so they could send that as evidence to China to like get, get whatever kind of either payoff or inducement or to, to say, hey, we, we did what you asked us to do. And this is just you know, completely antithetical to any approach. That is, so what we focused on was the rules yeah. to make sure that we were going to have rules that protected the integrity of the ballot in the international organization setting. We limited, you know, 
we, we, we worked, and all of this was done in great cooperation with other countries, because in the UN system, outside the, outside the Security Council in New York, but in Geneva, the US, we're the biggest payer for everything, but we have no veto. So we have to work with other countries and get them on board. What percentage and of compromise. the budget are we in the UN now? 30%? Almost 30% for the yeah. UN overall, and it varies by individual organization. Ed, what's the nature of the Chinese threat? I mean, we, we, we sort of jumped into this, that, and I want you both to talk about what we, why, why are we concerned? We have to be concerned, Bill, both because of their, just, just the size of the economy, the way it has grown, and the acceptance by so many people who basically enjoy the virtues of freedom around the world and free enterprise. Hey, we can get our widgets cheaper made in China. Uh, hey, oh yeah, well, we're dependent on them for supply chain, so we can't ruffle those feathers. Or if you're in a less developed country, uh, oh, China's been so good to us, they're helping us uh, develop our port system or building a railroad for us. Well, this goes back a long, long way in terms of Chinese efforts and, and communist efforts going back actually to what the Soviet Union did back in its heyday when it was working elsewhere around the world, whether it was in Southern Africa, et cetera. And going back to the Victims of Communism Foundation, you were right, Bill, that it's an amazing historic study to tell in terms of what's happened over the last hundred years, really, the last century, of the more than hundred million people who died because of this ideology, but it's ongoing. And it's ongoing not just in China, it's in Vietnam, it's in Cuba, it's particularly in North Korea. We all hear that all the time. And now you have places like Venezuela, once the most the richest country in all of Latin America, and following a Cuban model. Uh, it's, it's very distressing that they still would be credible. Now, are all those, all those other countries you mentioned, are they making common cause with the Chinese? Is it a, is it a, you, is it a... Cer, cer, I mean, certainly to varying degrees. I mean, they all have their own individual relationships. Right. I mean, v Vietnam, obviously, Because I don't think communist. the Vietnamese like the Chinese. They don't. They, they right. have, exactly. I was going to no. say, they have got their own domestic, yeah. you know, and security issues with, yeah. with the Chinese, particularly Chinese, Chinese come right in, in the yeah. South China Sea. Yeah. And they you know, Vietnam's a, a significant economic player as well as a, it's a hundred million people on China's southern border. And they're mad right now at what the Chinese particularly are doing with their dams up the Mekong River where Vietnamese, I happened to have lunch yesterday with someone who knows Vietnam very, very well. And uh, the Viet Vietnamese for generations have farmed certain rice paddies along the Mekong Delta. And all of a sudden, uh, China is, in, through their dams, is, is holding water. Then it lets the water free and... The water comes down without any warning to people downriver, uh, wipes out villages, kills people, takes eliminates, uh, as I say, fields that have been have been farmed for generations, and they're just not good actors in the whole world community. Uh, and the, so there, there they, are, they there, no, are there are China. China. If you look at all the countries surrounding, they have no friends no, in that. Right, no, no. right. And I mean, they've got none. sixteen countries around them. Yeah. Right. yeah. So that's. Did you see that at work in the, in the UN? I mean, is it... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, the way you put it, you know, China doesn't have a lot of friends. 
They have people that will work with them. They, and, co- and they coerce. Either, you say coerce, coerce or, either through yeah. inducements or fear. But they don't have friends. And that, I think, is really the big competitive advantage that the U.S. has. Well, it, it seems to me that we've got to make the case for freedom, though, because, yeah. it, you know, it was pretty obvious when we're fighting Russia or the Soviet Union that we're free, they're, they're locked down, they're living in, in, under tyranny. The cause of freedom in the United States is not as ascendant as it once was. I mean, you've now got, among kids, it's freedom is not that much of a value, it's equity, or it's uh, being woke. I mean, I don't want to change the subject particularly, but the nature of the enemy we're fighting is very anti-freedom, and yet we've got to mount a mount a, mount a counterattack. I mean, how do you see us doing that? On I guess on every front. And here, Bill, I think about some of the concessions that are constantly being made by uh, our political leadership. Uh, when we when we gave Russia the per- permission to continue with Nord Stream 2 pipeline in the North Sea to make Western Europe more dependent on Russian energy supplies. And someone said, well, it was 95% complete. Uh, why, why shouldn't we let them complete it? I said, you know, a 95% complete pipeline under an ocean in 20 years, it's just going to be a piece of tin junk down there. It's not going to be of any use to anybody. Uh, but we, we made it viable for them and for our allies then to be able to separate themselves, I guess, from us. So what we need is, is really strong leadership, I think, not only from the United States, but from our allies, whether they're in NATO, whether it's in North Asia, think about Korea and Japan particularly, whether it's from besieged allies like Taiwan, outnumbered 70, 80 to 1 in terms of what might happen to them, and on down. And we've, we've done some interesting things, and in, in Andrew, you were involved, I mean, things like Quad, where we've got the United States and Japan and India and Australia working together uh, to kind of counter what's going on in China. So the whole idea of communism and what VOC, Victims of Communism, is all about is kind of an historic thing that, well, well, you'll have your museum and people can go in and see how bad it used to be. It's not just an historic thing. It's very much a thing for now and for the future. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Ed Fulner and and Andrew Bimberg, and we're talking about the nature of the Chinese communist threat and how the United States, America, needs to marshal its forces effectively against it. And first of it, First is understanding the issue, understanding the problem, and that's what you guys are doing with your with your foundation. I mean, what's what's your role? Yeah, yeah. Let, let, me, let me just say one thing about the history of it, Bill, because this goes to one of the points you've made before. Victims of Communism Foundation was authorized by a specific act of Congress passed unanimously with outspoken support from Jesse Helms on the right and Nancy Pelosi on the left signed into law by President Bill Clinton in 1993. And we are proud of that charter because that's what the traditional American perspective has always been, that we are different from the communists and that we want to honor those people who have suffered from lack of freedom. Uh, And that's why I guess it's so important today when, as you pointed out in the beginning, so many people don't see the difference, and we've got to remind them of what that difference is. Sorry. Yeah, so, but, but to your uh, question about what we're doing today, I'd really like to talk about, we have a really impressive uh, China Studies program at Victims of Communism led by Dr. Adrian Zenz, who's our senior China fellow, who has been doing incredible research 
new research about what is happening. The area he specialized in has been Western China in the Xinjiang area. And the research that we've been able to produce um, in terms of ex exposing and explaining what is happening with the genocide that China is now committing against Uyghurs and other you know, religious and ethnic minorities in Western China has been critical. So you know, we saw the decision by, at the end of the Trump administration, to ban the importation of cotton and tomatoes from Xinjiang. And then immediately after that, you saw the decision by Secretary Pompeo to label, label what was happening. what they're doing there is you're using forced slave labor. Forced labor, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You saw the decision by Secretary Pompeo to make a formal designation of genocide, which then equally importantly, then under the Biden administration, Secretary Blinken reconfirmed. There was a lot of speculation, if you remember back at the beginning of the year, that, well, what, what's the Biden administration going to do? Would, you know, the new secretary walk back Secretary Pompeo's genocide determination? And they didn't. And one of the reasons you know, that I believe that's the case is that the research base, that those decisions, both the importation bans and the genocide determination has been based on, including the research done by Adrian Zenz, is so clear and so convincing. There's no way you can walk that back. And that um, it's an important message that the rest of the world, I believe, is now slowly waking up to. I mean, this is a conversation that I would have with other ambassadors in Geneva or in the human rights space. For, you know, the entire time I was there and you had a lot of tepid, you know, acknowledgement and significant hesitancy on the part of other countries to, you know, to sign on to the letter or put their name on it. And we're seeing that change now, I believe, frankly, because the evidence has become so convincing and so overwhelming, um, not just the acts that the Chinese government are doing, but like the, the latest research paper we put out but shows the intent to commit a genocide. China has weapons, though, the Russians didn't, Soviet Union didn't. I mean, the difference is, Soviet, Cold War, we had the Soviet Unions, they had their missiles, we were Iron Curtain, it was pretty obvious, they were bad. We weren't that interconnected. Now with China, though, I mean, we are so interconnected economically, technologically, you know, we've got a big threat with our semiconductors mainly come from Taiwan, and, and China has designs on that, but they've got their own semiconductor that we buy from them. And with regard to the Uyghurs and the slave labor, they make, they're making cotton, right? Picking cotton. That, that, that's been one. Yeah. And, the, and a lot of the apparel companies, there were some retailers, I think a yep. Swedish retailer that was in China had 400 stores. Mm -hmm. And they came out against this slave labor. And right. then next thing you know, if you called China's Uber, they couldn't tell you where the store was. Right. And they, they, they disappeared the whole chain. And they've got that same kind of pressure to bring to bear on Nike, the National um, Basketball Association. Yep. Uh, there, there, there's a couple of this. So it starts with cotton. That was the most obvious yeah. one. But we're now seeing questions about other, um, you know, solar panel uh, components that are being produced with slave oh, labor. Well, yeah, like, you know, the, the whole supply chain in China, it's a very obvious question mark about kind of how much they've integrated, you know, forced slave labor of Uyghurs Cotton was the obvious one, but in other sectors, I mean, we're doing research on this right now to help identify what other parts of the supply chain are infected by So that. if you want solar in the United States, we're buying it all from China, China. and they're using slave labor to make to it? Ma that, that's what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. Well, except, except, look, we do have some My friends. I, I, as you both know, I'm going to be going to Korea very soon, to South Korea, free Korea. And one of the main Korean companies actually moved their whole solar panel production from China to Georgia, Dalton, Georgia, 
And it's, it's a Korean company, but it, they actually make solar panels now yeah. in the United States. Uh, yeah. So th there are options out there. Samsung used to do all of their telephones in China. They moved them all to Vietnam. Now, yes, Vietnam's still a communist country, but at least they're not dependent completely on China for that part of their supply chain for their telephones. So there are some positive things happening from our friends and allies around. But at the same time, General Motors' largest uh, sale of automobiles is to China. Are they going to go over and uh, shake that up? And yeah, That's a problem. And, and, and you, you touched on this, and so did Ed just now. I want to come back to the question about why is it a threat? Because China has had this impressive, I'd say, lie message for years, which is we're, we're just trying to defend ourselves. Just leave us alone. <laughs> and, you know, we're and basically drawing this. We're not like the Soviet Union. They were this ideological, you know, global threat trying to spread their ideology around the world. We're just trying to you know, just leave us alone. And it's such a, per, a pernicious lie because, it, one, it lulls you into the idea of, oh, we, we shouldn't worry about them. But it's a clear lie in that they now use their geopolitical power with other countries or their market power with companies to now reach out beyond their borders. I mean, I, I, I actually I mentioned this to the Chinese ambassador when I was in uh, Geneva. You know, one of the most telling things that, that, that had happened in the recent years was the controversy over um, when one of the NBA owners had tweeted Free Hong Kong, and you saw the threats of economic repercussions against the NBA by the oh, Chinese the government. Coach. Right, the coach right. Of the coach. Yeah, yeah. But that, but but what it helped show is that this whole idea that, that China is just defensive, just leave us alone. We, no, no, no. They're going to take their ideology, their censorship, their lack of freedom, well, did, and they're going to seek to superimpose it in in your country if you criticize them. And that's a huge threat. Wasn't there a martial arts star that somehow said something incorrect about Taiwan or Hong Kong, and he gave this groveling apology because his, you know, his, his martial big, arts is such a big, big, uh, big market in China. Well, and in his movies would not movie. uh, would not have the the proper attendance that he hoped for in terms of paying paying for making the movies. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, and and the NBA I think just committed to what three billion dollars for the Chinese market because it's so big for them. Right. These are American sports teams going over there uh, because of the their search for the almighty, uh, not even the almighty dollar, for the um, almighty renminbi. Yeah, know? well, the, yeah, the China, China would like to change yeah. the reserve currency. That's for sure. <laughs> That's you for are sure. Renminbi, yeah. Are they sure. making any progress on that front? Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on, okay. on that. I, I don't think so. I don't think people want to have no, China's no, controlling no, no. the world no, they, currency. They, they, they certainly don't. I want to bring up one other point on that whole subject, though. Yeah. We have... A good friend who you should have on one of your shows, Bill, and that's Roger Robinson. Oh, I know Roger. And Roger's done yeoman's work in terms of pointing out that in the United States, in, well, China's just this other big emerging country, uh, all of a sudden Chinese companies are being listed on the New York Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange, over-the-counter markets, and American veterans and American servicemen and women whose pension funds are invested in some of those stocks. And these are the same companies now listed on American exchanges that are suppliers to the People's Liberation Army, right. suppliers to our enemy. Yeah. I mean, what an outrage. Yeah, and we're, so we're, anyway, we're Roger Robinson... We're financing their munitions industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Roger Robinson has done yeoman's work in terms of getting them delisted. And both administrations, both the Trump administration and now the Biden administration have reaffirmed that they're going to be delisted. Well, this surprises me that Biden has actually done a couple of things right. Yeah. It, it, I've, 
I'm surprised because he did something right. He kept this, uh, I think there were like 76 companies that were banned from the EU exchanges, and he kept that in place. And you mentioned the other thing he did. What, what, what's the Biden versus Trump? Uh, my, my, my one line is that U.S.-China relations are not ever going to go back to, quote, the good old days, yeah. whether it's the Obama days or the George W. Bush days. Right. It's new. And leaders in both political parties realize that there really is a China threat. And you see this from uh, Tim Kaine, the former Democrat candidate for vice president, joining together with uh, Tom Cotton on, on joint efforts to stop further Chinese incursions into the American economic system. You know, and there are many examples like that. Yeah. I mean, when, when I was still uh, in the White House before I went to Geneva, we'd become aware of the issue about federal retirees, the, the, the thrift savings plan, you know, the retirement plan for federal retirees was about to get shifted over from a you know, more limited international Well, you fund. were the one, first one to identify this in uh, the White House. Yeah, we, mean, we, we worked on it. It took time to get it fixed. It didn't get fixed till after I was already in Geneva, but it was great to see that through. And to Ed's point, we had bipartisan support. I remember Senator Rubio, Senator Shaheen, we're both very keen on this and making sure this got fixed, um, and and that did get fixed. And then you, what you referenced was, you know, both you know President Trump's executive order last year and then President Biden's executive order this year, taking you know DOD's identification of you know Chinese companies that you know are directly supportive of the PLA, and you know saying that U.S. persons cannot hold those equities. And what's important is that what I saw in the, in the Biden executive order it actually expanded and created a new category, not just those that are related with the PLA, but those related to surveillance issues. So Hike Vision, which is a huge Chinese company that you know, does all their surveillance technology, was added to that list by the Biden administration. And that was a great sign to see that taken. So I totally agree that with Ed that this is a bipartisan issue. And one other example of that was the end of last year. You know, Congress passed and the president signed a bill that now requires um, the end to one of the most Ridiculous you know, examples of kind of government enforcement discretion, where you know, and you'll you'll remember the, the old Sarbanes-Oxley reforms from you know 20 well, that's years a ago. Painful memory, I'm yeah. sure, but you know people have come around to the understanding. You had you had the development of the PCAOB that was now going to you know audit the auditors to make sure you, you dealt with that. Sure. For the last several years, companies from one country and one country only have been able to flaunt. Oh, that's right the ability to have make their books open yeah. to the regulators. And it's been Chinese listed companies that we allow to list in the United States in violation of federal law. So what you had though, you had bipartisan support for a bill that said that's gonna stop and that's gonna end. You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Andrew Brimberg and Ed Fulner and we're talking about uh, China and the fact that China has now become something that maybe the one issue we seem to have bar bipartisan agreement on. The the so the in the there's so many places to go with this yeah. i don't know yeah <laughs> we could talk this whole i, I did want to come back to make the case you're making for freedom and all the the the, the victims of communism and how bad it really is because i think that's getting blurred when you've got 40 percent of americans and 50 percent of kids in their 20s thinking hey it's just fine you know it's just people being nice to each other sharing you know that's not the reality how, how are you what are you doing to to wake people up. Yeah. We have a, a teacher's education program uh, in terms of being able to teach this. You Tell us about your 
your trip just recently yeah. to Florida. It's very I, exciting. It, it was very exciting. I was just in Florida yesterday where the governor signed uh, several kind of civics education reform bills, one of which was a bill that victims of communism had worked in close partnership with members of the, their state legislature to push forward the requirement that students learn about communism and totalitarian regimes in the, you know, in high school, in their, in their comparative government classes, and learn and understand the flaws and evils of communism when learning about the U.S. government and how it works, and including, as part of that great legislation, also included the development of these profiles in patriotism, that we are going to tell the stories mm -hmm. of those that have fled communism as refugees or exiles and, and made it to the United States. And we are so thrilled about that part, too, because that builds on another project that we've been running at Victims of Communism, which has been called our Witness Project, where we've done these really great I call it you know, mini documentaries, you know, eight to 10 minutes of first person testimonials by those that have been victims of communism. And those are all, those story. are all available so on, those are website. on our website. Yep. Yeah. Victims of communism.org. So is, 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 does China have internal weaknesses? I think they do. And does Z really have the whip hand? Is it, is it, is how firm is his grasp on power? Cause I think of him as the really prime mover of the, uh, the aggression we're seeing. Whip hand, yes. Uh, the it's pretty clear, I think, to most outside observers, that any dissidence from his leadership is being uh, sub being subdued or even eliminated very clearly inside the Communist Party. Is he disappearing people? Uh, that might be a little strong. Uh, but, I, you know, we look at some of our friends. We just presented our Truman Reagan Award, bipartisan award, to Jimmy Lai in absentia, the great hero of a free media in Hong Kong. Uh, and the day we presented it to him was the day after his third consecutive trial began. Uh, and he's got, he's got another four trials, I believe, pending for what he has done because he had the audacity to publish a newspaper uh, expressing free views and, and to support pro-democracy movements inside Hong Kong. Uh, this is no longer tolerated by the Chinese. So the clampdown is universal. I saw in, in our daily digest in VOC, the new Chinese ambassador coming to the United States is no longer going to be Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Diplomat. He's one of the real tough guys from President Xi, and he is, he's going to be much more in your face than the current, uh, the current uh, ambassador has been. So it's very, it's depressing, but at the same time, it's, it's a good challenge for us to remember and to draw more clearly, I guess, the lines between what we believe in and what the other side believes in, and that ought to be a lesson that the kids should be able to learn if, if the kids could start learning real history and, and everything else. Well, did he you blunder know? by coming public with his aggression? Uh, it seems to me the Chinese are making tremendous progress in infiltrating all these different cultural institutions, Confucius, Confucius institutes, institutes, the whole coming in the United States. Now, everybody likes the Chinese. We do. I mean, China, pe pe Americans generally like Chinese, but they've got 80 million members of the Chinese Communist Party that don't necessarily think we're that great. But it seems like Xi came public with the, with this too soon. Well, I, I think that's... I mean, they could huge. have been velvet if they'd waited longer. 
Well, that, that's going to be the huge historical question of, you know, did they come out with that too clear too soon or not? And that's what we're going to have to figure out and struggle through the next what several decades. But I want to just come back to, to, the, to the first question part about, you know, China's biggest vulnerability in the way they perceive it is their own domestic population. They view their domestic population as their own biggest threat. You know, the, 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 the biggest potential cause for instability in the country, which is why you see such repression by the communist regime on its people, whether it's, you know, Tibet, the Uyghurs out in Xinjiang, you know, Christians inside, you know, house churches and, and Christians inside, you know, mainland China. And what, you know, Ed just talked about, you know, the, the complete lockdown and crushing of freedom in Hong Kong. You know, you talked about our award for, to, to Jimmy Lai just two weeks ago, which was great. It was, a, it was an honor to present the award with you. Um, and then we've now seen, you know, Apple Daily, the, the newspaper is being, you know, crushed and shut down. And that what the regime views as their biggest concern is any competing free thought, whether it's, in, you know, influenced by, just by free information or religion or some other ideology, that has to be stomped out domestically. And that seems to be their biggest, you know, focus. We think we have problems here with big tech in terms of uh, subduing certain political perspectives. But boy, over there, it is absolute. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party controls every single social media outlet. And, anybody, and millions of people literally full-time are censors. And anybody who dares to put something on a, their equivalent of Facebook or WeChat or whatever, boy, they're shut down immediately. They're, they're non-existent. And by the way, they're probably watching this show. <laughs> I've done seven or eight shows in China. And what the Good. chat board's interesting because what they'll say is you, you guys are just, just grumpy because we're now the ascendant and you were, you were declining and there's nothing evil about us, but you're just uh, looking in the past. We're the future. Yeah. That's, their, that's their view. Yeah, yeah. And that and she's got this thing. Of, I think they've really launched, it's not just Marxism, but they've got this century of humiliation. Yes. Where it's their time to, yep. to emerge. I mean, did you see that in your dealings with them uh, oh, at the UN? Absolutely. You, you saw that theme reemerge multiple times. Um, talk about having a real victim complex. I mean, they, they, they would blame the United States. I, mean, I heard it directly and then through other countries that, you know, that they would blame the United States in particular for holding them down or keeping them back. When I, I mean, I just found it so offensive to imagine over the last 40 years, has there been a single country that has done more, had a more explicit policy to promote the growth and advancement of China more than the United States? Then, yeah, we've I mean, been, we, totally we, we've been their yeah, biggest yeah, yeah. supporters and, to help them in every possible way. And to get this you know, lie yeah. is just you know, outrageous. Um, what, one, one point I, I want to make sure we touch on in terms of yeah, we've got a couple What's of minutes to wrap here. up here. I think we could go this for is, another five oh, hours. We could go on for hours. We're, right, we're right, running yeah. out. Of, I, look, but, but let's, let's yeah, but, make, make these points because the, I think I want to get you back. All of this is happening. I don't know people know. All of this is happening in the backdrop that China is slated to host the Olympics yeah. next year in 2022. And that is just unacceptable. You know, coming back to where we started on, this is a, the question of China, both in terms of, you that's, know, that's the winter, Olympics. Ascend, winter, winter Olympics, Olympics in 2022. Yeah. You know, whether, you know, going back to the WTO and everything in between, will the international community, will countries around the world hold China accountable for its bad actions when they make them or not? And in my view and perspective has been the biggest problem is China's bad actions, of course, 
but enabled by the unwillingness or inability of countries at times, including the United States, but other, other countries around the world to hold them accountable for when they act badly. So we're going to face this ch question in less than a year. Mm -hmm. you know, is the world going to send you know, diplomatic delegations and come and be tools of a domestic propaganda event at the very time countries are recognizing there is a genocide of you know, a million people in concentration camps and a genocide of forced slave labor yeah, happening yeah. in China? Bill, I'd like, I, I want to make two points. One is, in terms of current Chinese behavior, yes, it is the genocide. Yes, it is the slave labor. It's also the forced organ transplants, mm -hmm. the horrifying stories. I was in Europe last week. I met with a senior American diplomat who said, who had been in Asia. He said, the horror of seeing people walk around uh, either wearing sunglasses or eye patches because somewhere along the line, their eyes were physically removed. They're, they're alive. These are real living people. They just take their eyes out and sell them on the international market. I mean, you know, that, that's a pretty horrifying thought. And, you know, that's going on today. But I want to, if, if I had one concluding thought, uh, Bill, th this going back to history, Andrew and I had the opportunity about a couple of weeks ago to have lunch with a Jewish refugee uh, from Romania who got out when Romania was still communist, came over, was adopted by Jewish parents in New York City, raised, and uh, now very, very concerned about communism, not only in Romania as it was and in all of Eastern Europe, but how it still continues around the world. And I said to him very candidly, I said, Louis, I said, this is very, very interesting. I said, but you're a Jew. What about the Holocaust? Wasn't that awful, what happened under Hitler and the Nazis? And he looked at me very calmly, and he said, Ed, he said, Hitler did it to the Jews. The communists do it to everybody. I thought to myself, wow, what a statement that is about what we're up against right now. And, and I would just add to the question, the, the part about history you know, I, I love, I've always loved the quote, you know, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I think what we're doing at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation is rooted in making sure we educate people about what has happened with communism in the 20th century. Because I really feel, particularly people my age or younger, have never actually been it. So it's not that they've forgotten. They've never actually learned the lessons of the evils of communism in the 20th century. So I think educating them and teaching them about that so that they can draw from those experiences can help inform people as we move forward and deal with the challenges front and center posed by communist China today. But if you don't have that founding and that rooting, it's going to be very difficult for people to understand, oh, well, what's, why do you keep saying the Communist Party? Who cares? Um, and I think that's what seeps into some of this idea that, oh, you're anti-China, meaning like you're racist or anti-Chinese, when that's the furthest thing from. I mean, as you said, Americans love the Chinese people, it's the Chinese Communist Party, and making that connection and helping people have the background of what that means in seeing what have totalitarian communist regimes done always for decades throughout the 20th century that caused the deaths of 100 million people and enslaved you know, billions now. Yeah, yeah. Bill, when we open our museum later this year, the theme is a very simple one, remember us. A hundred million people 
died because of this scourge of this abhorrent philosophy, remember us. And the victims have been everywhere around the world, and they deserve being remembered. Well, we're going to help them remember it. This to be continued. <laughs> um, seems like the Winter Olympics are a great focal point to get the word out for this, because that's going to be on everybody's mind. And it seems like that's a great way to put together a list of all the past, current, and future oppressions. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Do you have other members of the coalition in this one? There are some people. Oh, yeah. We, we, we've worked with, you know, I think now we're well over 100 other organizations okay. that have spoken out, written letters, and talked about the need for the IOC to you know, move. Well, it seems like location. because of your background, and obviously, Ed, your background, you did build the world's greatest think tank. <laughs> thank you, Bill. That was a little thing you did. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I think there's a real leadership role for you guys in this because there are a lot of people interested, but we we need to we need a we need a leader. I think. Yep. So. And I'll just add from my experience in Geneva, the leader has to be the United States. With, right. Without the U.S. leadership, nothing's right. going to happen. But this is a real this is going to be a real challenge, and I think opportunity for the United States government now to take this issue on and lead. Okay, Andrew Ed, thanks. To be continued, I'm sure we've got a lot more to talk about. You've been watching The Bill Walton Show, and I've been talking with Dr. Edwin Fulner and Honorable Ambassador Andrew Brimberg about uh, China and communism worldwide and, and what we intend to raise awareness about that issue. So thanks for listening, thanks for watching, and we'll, uh, we'll talk next time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.